This is a podcast about Vancouver, our community, our culture, our quirks, and all the colors that combine to make our city of glass. My name's Mo Amir, and I'll be your host. This is Van Color. Sherlock Knives is it, so I'll hurry up on it. This is Van Color. Today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a health crusader, a strong advocate and leader for public health in Canada who will explain the city's and the country's opioid crisis, a crisis that continues to take the lives of more than 11 Canadians per day. He is the executive medical director of the BC Centre for Disease Control and a professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health. He also serves as a deputy provincial health officer for BC. He received his medical degree from McMaster University and a doctoral degree in epidemiology from Harvard University. From 1999 to 2010, he was the program director for epidemiology at the BC Center for Excellence in HIV-AIDS and was co-lead investigator on the evaluation of InSight, North America's first supervised injection site. He is listed at number seven on Vancouver Magazine's Most Powerful People in the City, he is Dr. Mark Tyndall. Dr. Tyndall, how are you? Uh, fine, thank you, Mel. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. I know you're, you're a busy man. You travel quite a bit, so I uh, appreciate you taking the time to be here with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Let's start right at the beginning. Uh, given that the opioids situation in Vancouver, B.C., and Canada as a whole is referred to as a health crisis, I want to understand what the metrics have been and which metrics have been met to qualify this as a crisis and why we use that terminology specifically. So what exactly is a health crisis and what makes the misuse, the dependence, and the addiction to opioids in this province and country a health crisis? Okay, well, I've been at this for probably 20 years and um, overdoses and all the other issues surrounding uh, uh, drug addiction and poverty have been with us for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, as we've tracked overdoses uh, in the city of Vancouver and British Columbia over the past two decades, uh, we've tolerated between two and 300 people dying of overdoses during that time. And okay. uh, in the mid-90s, about 1995, there was a spike of uh, uh, close to 500 overdose deaths, and at that time, there was a, um, a renewed emphasis on um, harm reduction and trying to reduce that. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, that kind of uh, um, petered out a bit or it went back to two or 300 a year, and uh, though that's a crisis in itself, we, you know, got used to it. Starting about uh, 2014, um, we noticed an increasing number of people overdosing, and um, and then it became exponential. So this mm-hmm. year we're heading for almost 2,000. So that's wow. uh, you know uh, uh, you know uh, five to ten times what we were seeing before. So um, we in. Um, uh, tw- 2016, um, Perry Kendall, who was the chief medical officer for the province, uh, declared a public health emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, based on these rising numbers, um, there was a lot of controversy or discussion at the time whether this did really qualify as a public health emergency because unlike uh, you know something that came 
from nowhere, um, you know, SARS, Ebola, these kind of things that right. uh, would probably require a very intensive effort and then they'd go away. Um, we knew that uh, overdoses wouldn't go away, mm-hmm. um, but the crisis was um, called, or the emergency was called, just because of these exponentially rising numbers of uh, overdoses. And it really served mainly to bring um, some focus to uh, to the problem and bring it up a higher in a, in a higher level priority for the for the government and people in general. Mm-hmm. So basically, there was a, a baseline when you're looking at um, drug overdoses. Suddenly, there was a, a very sharp increase, which yeah. obviously you and others took notice of and and had to say that, okay, this we have to do something right now because this is spiraling exactly. out of control. Yeah. Now, what made this uh, really something that did uh, change overnight? It wasn't that everything that we were, all the factors involved in overdoses were slowly getting worse, you know, poverty and mental illness and more people using drugs, but um, it was really the introduction of fentanyl into the drug supply. And mm-hmm. we knew in... 2013, 2014, it started slowly appearing, but very low levels. And now um, when we do the toxicology of people who have died of an overdose, uh, 85% of the um, people dying have uh, fentanyl or some sort of analog in their system. So something did abruptly change. And now in the city of Vancouver, it's uh, very unusual to get heroin, which was uh, Hmm. very easy to get uh, three or four years ago. I I guess that's my next question. I kind of want to break this down. So what exactly are opioids? What is fentanyl? And I guess you you sort of answered this already. When when we talk about fatalities in the opioids crisis, we're talking about fentanyl poisoning, essentially, right? Not just drug overdoses. Um, I think that's a very useful way to term it. Um, so it's, uh, it's become more... Um, you know, accepted and common that we do call this now a poisoning epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, but it's a change of the way we usually talk about drug overdoses, which often um, or, or sort of give the impression it's uh, the person's fault that they took drugs and they overdosed. And right. so um, the empathy around that has always been difficult to get people to know, look, these are people in trouble and uh, these are unintentional events that happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um but fentanyl, um, it was really sort of changed the narrative around that, that people who are just regularly taking drugs, um, albeit illegally for mm-hmm. the most part, um, all of a sudden were confronted with a product that uh, was deadly. And so, um, you know, a lot of people who have a, a long drug history or used for, you know, 20, 30 years have used heroin Um all of a sudden are, are dropping dead of fentanyl um, hmm. because initially, um, unbeknownst to them, I think, the introduction of fentanyl happened gradually and slowly. It started appearing mixed in with heroin and over the last two or three years has basically replaced heroin. So people wow. people buying uh, powder on the street that they use to inject um, have no idea what's in it. Hmm. Um, but now if you talk to people buying the drugs, they're you know, m- almost everybody expects that they're buying fentanyl now. They they, hmm. they know that. Wow. And so fentanyl is only found in 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 what people would assume would be heroin. It's not found in, in other illicit drugs, or is it? Well, there's a, quite a lot of uh, uh, study around this. I mean, um, most there's, you know, 
people use different substances, and there's people that use exclusively one or exclusively another. So people who are uh, regular users of cocaine and crystal meth, uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, are not being exposed to fentanyl. There's um, drug testing that's been introduced in some places in Vancouver, and uh, there is a small proportion of people who think they're buying cocaine or crystal meth who have fentanyl in it also. But mm-hmm. uh, it's probably less than 5%. Um, the idea that uh, the narrative out there that the whole drug, um, illegal drug uh, market is poisoned with fentanyl is not correct. Um, it's really the fentanyl has replaced the other opioids in the system. But um, through contamination and probably there is you know some anecdotal evidence of um, purposely putting fentanyl in stimulants um, mm. it's not a at this point in time it's not uh, it's not common so w- when you say other opioids um, obviously we're talking about heroin but what else is fentanyl being put in in terms of the opioid spectrum well um, it's interesting there's differences across Canada and certainly across North America so sure. the currency of illegal opioid use in many places was diverted pharmaceutical pills so mm. uh, the oxycodones and the hydromorphone pills and the morphine and the fentanyl patches these are um, in many cities with not a, a very robust heroin trade um, was the currency of most opioid users in right. Vancouver um, we seem to always have a quite a steady flow of uh, white powder heroin that showed up on the streets, and that's been replaced. But there's um, other opiates people were using were often diverted pharmaceutical pills, so people, um, you know, got prescriptions and they ended up on the street. Mm-hmm. And um, fentanyl, um, the manufacturers and the um, the criminal element um, started making, um, you know, fake. Uh, fake drugs. So they look like Oxycontins, they look like Dilaudid pills, and they were really fentanyl pills. And so... Um, Is that just because uh, it was cheaper? Well, yes, exactly. Okay. Um, so the whole, you know, nobody really knows why all this happened. Economics is probably part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine that uh, trying to ship um, big bales of heroin from Afghanistan to uh, Maine and Hastings took a lot of organization and sure. expense versus... Uh, chemicals that people could easily mix up and, and make fentanyl and these synthetic analogs. So clearly mm. it's a it's a much cheaper product to uh, manufacture and, and get on the street. But fentanyl has been around for decades, so it's more than just the economics, I think, at play here. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what that is, but if it was only driven by profit, um, heroin wouldn't have been available a long time ago, but uh, Hmm. it it seemed to. So I don't have any great explanation of why this happened so quickly in Canada. In Australia, Europe, other places and colleagues that I work with, um, fentanyl is very unusual in those places. So I'm not sure why Canada and North America were the targets for a a very uh, robust fentanyl uh, trade. I've heard that Vancouver and British Columbia as a whole has sort of been the epicenter for Canada. And now things are starting to spread eastward. Why Why Vancouver? Or why the Lower Mainland area? Well, peop, there's, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of hypotheses and a lot of studies that the, the, the infamous downtown east side has been in the downtown east side for decades now. Sure. And uh, it has been a center of uh, uh, substance use and poverty and other things. We've In Vancouver, we've uh, sort of ghettoized a lot of people and a lot of housing and uh, services have been concentrated in the downtown east side and um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, 
you know, a lot of places where people are not welcome. So um, we've sort of pushed people into a small, a relatively small area mm-hmm. and got lots of attention. But, um, you know, for reasons that I, I, I don't pretend to understand, there has been uh, more availability of drugs here. The, uh, the climate is uh, probably more amenable to people um, from across Canada. There's quite a lot of people that weren't born in Vancouver that, uh, that live here now. Sure. So uh, there has been a you know, a bit of a magnet for people to, uh, uh, come to the, come to the West coast, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always been higher, but with the, uh, overdose crisis, we've really, uh, uncovered or pulled back the curtain on a lot of drug use across Canada. So the, mm-hmm. the rates in Ontario now aren't that far behind, uh, the overdose death rates in BC. So they're mm-hmm. really catching up. Edmonton has a, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Alberta has uh, very high rates of overdoses. And so, um, we tend to focus on the downtown east side, but the problem does exist across Canada. I worked in Ottawa for four years. There's a, a lot of uh, a lot of pockets of people using drugs there, and overdoses are really serious there too. So it's yeah. uh, uh, Vancouver gets a lot of attention, but uh, the problem does exist across Canada. Yeah. Now we're, we are obviously looking at these cases as poisonings, but has the rates of opioids addiction been increasing as well in in BC and in Canada. Yeah, I I think so. Um, these are hard hard data to get a hold of. A lot sure. since it's been an illegal activity, there's been a lot of people that have been using these on a regular basis, but um, quite quietly, and they've been uh, able to you know go go to work and uh, go to school and do their do their thing. And mm-hmm. they a lot of people that I know um, have had a, a relatively steady supply of. Uh, of opiates over the over the years, and uh, what's happened with the narrative that uh, mostly coming from the U.S. that doctors have created this mess by overprescribing these drugs to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a real push to uh, for doctors, a lot of pressure to reduce their prescribing practices, not start people on these drugs, um, try and wean people off them. Um, you know, they're real push that uh, when you're leaving hospital after surgery that you don't get six-week supply of drugs that you may or may not use. Right. So um, there's been a, um, you know, for good reason, um, a real effort to try to reduce prescribing of these drugs. But the um, unintended consequences is that we've thrown a lot of people who had a steady supply of drugs to the illegal drug market, and now mm-hmm. that's fentanyl. So uh, there's pr- probably, um, you know, we know as far as prescription per capita that uh, Canada is second to the United States as far as prescribing these drugs. So clearly there's uh, a lot of use of these drugs and a lot of availability. And there are people certainly who, uh, you know, inadvertently got um, uh, dependent on these drugs. Um, And that substantiates that narrative that, you know, these drugs were over-prescribed, right? If if we're one of the highest per capita... Yeah, prescriptions. It it certainly did uh, fuel uh, a robust market of uh, diverted prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. But I think we also have to remember that uh, the reason people use these drugs is not um, uh, solely because they're um, addicted and dependent on them. There's a real um, need and search for these drugs. So people wanna want these drugs. They make people feel better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they reduce their pain. A lot of people are driven to drug use because of uh, trauma and psychological pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's uh, it's not as simple as, you know, we addicted a whole 
uh, generation of people, and sure. now we're paying for it. Uh, a lot of the use of these drugs is driven by a desire to get these drugs and mm-hmm. uh, and to get to get high and to get pleasure and to uh, and to forget all the terrible things that have happened to you. Yeah. yeah. And and that's one of the things that, um, you know, Johan Hari talks about or Gabor Maté talks about mm-hmm. is that um, the, the root of a lot of this addiction or substance dependence is trauma. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm just curious, you know, have there been more trauma-inflicted people or are we just now shining a light in terms of drug usage, drug dependency in our society? Uh, I think both. I think um, certainly if you map out what's happened in the United States, the the areas most impacted are those with the most economic downturn, mm-hmm. chaos, and, and um, trauma to people. So there's, a, there's certainly a strong correlation with that. My clinical work over the years... Um, you know, it's very unusual for me to find to hear from somebody with a with a dependency problem who doesn't have a a bad story of trauma or something terrible's mm-hmm. happened to their lives that have uh, and drugs have been their answer. So uh, mm-hmm. there's uh, um, certainly the people that you see, um, you know, in the downtown east side community. Um, you know, almost everybody would have a a pretty uh, horrendous story of uh, of trauma and things that have happened to them, and mm-hmm. that's why we have to you know, get people to understand the empathy part of this. This is, you know, we tend to look at people as, uh, you know, they they uh, really carved out their own road and this right. is a trajectory. But, man, um, many of us who aren't in that position would, would be in that position if we went through what, what they've been through. So it's, yeah. uh, it's a huge, you know, it's a huge misunderstanding that instead of, uh, you know, trying to show empathy to people and try to understand why, why they're there— um, We've decided that we should just criminalize it and put them in the criminal justice system, which is one of the main things we're pushing back on. That's exactly the wrong thing to do for people. Mm-hmm. But back to your question about you know whether it's increasing, I, I think that um, there there may be a bit of that, but it's much more that we've uh, pulled back the curtain on a lot of people who uh, were using drugs but um, had a steady supply, and all of a sudden they've been they've been thrown into an illegal drug market that's now poisonous. Mm-hmm. How does this current opioids crisis compare with Vancouver's drug crisis of the 1990s? You've alluded to it already, but um, at that time, the city declared a public health emergency in 1997. Right. Um, So how does it compare? Well, um, I arrived in Vancouver in 99, so um, I wasn't here when that public health emergency, but I was certainly here at the time when uh, HIV and hepatitis C were rampant and uh, there was overdoses. But the the public health emergency was uh, not called specifically because of overdoses at that time, but more to do with the very high transmission of HIV and hepatitis C in the community and and the Mm -hmm. poverty and, you know, the really chaotic um, state of the downtown east side really uh, pushed that. Um, so I think it it does compare, but the focus now is really on overdoses, not so much HIV and mm-hmm. hepatitis C. Yeah. Um, we, we've sort of talked about the downtown east side and, and obviously people who suffer from severe trauma. Are there particular demographics that are more vulnerable to this crisis? Well, the most surprising thing from the statistics over the last three years is the uh, 
dominance of men. So there's uh, hmm. 80% of people dying are, are men. Really? And uh, wow. that is not in keeping with other statistics we've had as far as mortality and HIV and hepatitis C, which uh, hmm. in the, you know, if you took the um, downtown east side community, um, probably 70, uh, 60 to 70% are male, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of women in, in crisis too. And uh, um, for reasons that we didn't really expect, 80% of the deaths in the province. Now, mm-hmm. um, the many communities seem to have, uh, um, uh, have un, you know, uncovered a lot of men um, in fairly um, you know, unstable um, housing and employment situations that are using these drugs and often using alone. So in mm. some communities, it's predominantly all men that are, are dying. And often um, there's uh, an association with the trades and, and people that are, you know, again, fairly marginally employed, but um, right. they uh, they have been working and had had a steady supply of drugs and all of a sudden um, they, they don't. And so I think that's... Uh, been one of the more surprising things. It's relatively young people, um, hmm. between uh, about 70% are between 20 and 40, 48 or 49. Um, and so again, it although it does impact on young people, it's not a it's not a high school problem. Sure. It's a you know it's not a um, a disco party problem. It's uh, right. it's it's really more um, entrenched long term users who are succumbing to the overdoses. Do men use heroin more than women as well, or probably? Yeah. Um, okay. But again, um, you know, it, it's varied. Um, most the other thing people need to understand is that for many people it's poly drug use. So people with trauma and are driven to use drugs uh, often use multiple drugs. And uh, heroin is uh, heroin and opioids are. Um, called down or, you know, really make people feel uh, more comfortable and treat pain is one thing. and mm-hmm. But then the other extreme is the cocaine and crystal meth, which is also quite common. And that's a, they're stimulant drugs that, uh, right. and uh, a lot of people use both and mix them. The also diverted benzodiazepines have been an I- a real issue. So they're, they're mm-hmm. quite popular too. And uh, there seems to be a, a really uh, bad combination of people taking benzodiazepines and uh, opiates, or in this case, fentanyl. So a lot of, a lot and, of the deaths have been in. Uh, the, the benzodi, I can't say the name, benzodiazepines. Diazepines, yeah. those are downers as well? Um, well, they're um, sedative kind of medications, okay. but the Valiums and, and Ativans and those kind of things that gotcha. are um, um, just uh, anti-anxiety kind of medications for the most part. And again, uh, doctors have been um, you know, um, advised to cut back on these because they were given out quite, uh, quite liberally over the, over the years also. Hmm. So in in 2017, there were 4,000 opioid-related deaths in Canada, a 50% increase from 2016. What are the numbers looking like for 2016, is, or 2018, sorry? Or is it getting better this year? No, it'll be much worse. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, it worked. They... It's very uh, challenging getting uh, Canadian statistics. One of the things that um, the public health emergency in BC allowed us to do is collect data in a more, um, you know, a, a quicker way because the 
uh, data that's necessary is scattered all over. The ambulance have data, the coroner's office has data, the hospitals have data. And so we have mm. really made an effort in British Columbia to bring all that together. So we have fairly accurate, relatively timely numbers in BC, but the other provinces for the most part lag quite a bit behind. The, oh, the 4,000 deaths that they pulled together, there's some, um, you know, some of its estimates, they, you know, it's not like actually counting bodies some of it hmm. uh some of it's um the best guess from some provinces so those, those across canada the data is getting better but uh that means that we probably the numbers would grow just because we're able to capture more people and uh so i would anticipate we'd be looking at five to six thousand deaths in canada in uh, this in year. 2018 yeah so wow. it's going up and in in some you know in bc the the raw numbers have been relatively steady over the past couple of years. We have mm. between 80 and 120 people dying per month, which is tragic, but it, it's 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 leveled off in some respects if you just look at the raw numbers in the graph. Mm-hmm. Um, but in uh, Alberta and Ontario especially, they're going up. Mm. Um, so I would think across Canada, um, we haven't nearly hit the peak of this. And, really? Uh, wow. And uh, more and more people are... Uh, uh, fentanyl is being introduced in more and more communities, and yeah. um, and BC had a probably a 18 month jump start on fentanyl, and mm. uh, and the other provinces are just now catching up. Yeah. Hmm. So we had Sarah Blythe on the show to talk about her work at the Overdose Prevention Society. There are other clinics, such as Crosstown Clinic, also doing work to to save lives on the front lines. The Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services had noted that for Every one naloxin injection administered by first responders, 100 were delivered by community volunteers. So while the community response has been quite strong, what's the response for relief from the different levels of government? Clearly, you know, as 11 or more than 11 people per day die in this country because of opioids, why hasn't the state response been enough? Yeah, those are uh, those are great questions. <laughs> um, you know, being at the BCCDC, you know, being quite attached to the ministry. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, I I know firsthand that it's a it's a priority. And in, in Vancouver, in um, you know, in I've said before, in BC, we should be in the best situation. We have uh, a municipal government and. Gregor Robertson in Vancouver, especially, has been a real champion for, um, you know, bringing attention to this and mm-hmm. to support uh, um, interventions. Um, in BC, we created a whole new ministry um, to look at this specifically, the um, mental health and addictions. And we have a uh, Judy Darcy's a, a minister who's really engaged and in the whole process. And the liberal government in, in federally is certainly much more uh, progressive than. The preceding government, right? Um, so, in some ways, we should, you know, be able to uh, mount a, quite a, um, a comprehensive, uh, um, you know, um, response to this. But mm-hmm. um, if things just lagging, you know, we just and part of it is we haven't really come to uh, understand that this is because of a toxic drug supply. So the mm. standard things that we're working on, I think, are extremely important. The naloxone you mentioned, we have, you know. 
we've done amazing work as get, getting people trained with naloxone. As you say, the, we have a whole army of frontline people out there reversing overdoses every day and trained with naloxone. It's mm-hmm. a, quite a remarkable feat that we've yeah. uh, we've done. Um, and the uh, um, the overdose prevention side. So you mentioned insight at the beginning of the talk. That was two thousand and three. That was a, a you know a big big deal at the time, mm-hmm. but. Um, after a few months of inside opening, we were advocating for more sites because it was already at capacity, and clearly, you know, the, this problem didn't exist just at uh, on uh, on Hastings, mm-hmm. and so, uh, but we we're unable to move that dial. And then um, the provincial government called that we should open up these overdose prevention sites. So we now have about 25 of them, including including Sarah's. But mm-hmm. there's um, you know four others just in the downtown east side community, and then many communities throughout the province have developed overdose prevention sites. So um, so that's been extremely positive. Um, there's been a real push to get more people on methadone and suboxone. Mm-hmm. And then um, you mentioned Crosstown, so a, a real push to try and get people access to injectable medical programs. But all of these things, unfortunately, are fairly limited um, when people are buying poison drugs. So um, right. there's not um, all these things. They, and I think the the data would show that, um, you know, ad- addiction and poverty and trauma and mental illness, they haven't gone up exponentially in the last three years. They've been probably fairly steady, um, mm-hmm. but the numbers of deaths have what's been exponential. And uh, we have to understand that uh, that's all to do with the toxic drug supply. And we have to start thinking about how we can address that head on and yeah. that these harm reduction strategies uh, are insufficient. Uh, to uh, really, um, you know, significantly curb the um, the curve to change the curve, and uh, and you have to understand also that um, many of these interventions are to reverse overdoses once they've happened. So right. we're really just picking up the pieces at the end of it and haven't really addressed people bringing in these poison drugs in the first place. So. Um, and these overdose prevention sites and insight were never intended to observe everybody's drug use. People can inject multiple, multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. For a regular opiate user, it's generally three times a day. And they're not going to go every time to uh, a place and have people watch them inject. So mm-hmm. um, it's just totally unrealistic, and we could never have the capacity to do that. So we're really trying to set them narrative back to, well, we have to offer people an alternative to buying fentanyl on the street. And this is something that Crosstown does, right? They they have synthetic heroin that they that they offer? Yeah. So these are, these are highly medicalized models. So we're yeah. asking people at the case of Crosstown to come three times a day, and we'll give you a vial of either heroin or hydromorphone. Um, okay. For many people, um, if you talk to people at Crosstown, there's um, about 150 people who have been on it, and they're sl- they're adding some more slots as we speak. Every every week, there's mm-hmm. a few more people allowed. But um, you could talk to many people, and they would say this place this place saved my life. You know, mm-hmm. it was. Uh, but um, there's many people also who this kind of highly medicalized version of uh, safe drug supply is not uh, not a- appropriate. They, you know, they're not people don't want to go three times a day. Uh, to get their drugs and to sit there for half an hour after they inject and to be right. part of things. So we really need to get a much more low barrier option for people who just will not be able to 
you know, meet those requirements of a highly medicalized uh, model of, uh, of a safe supply. Mm-hmm. So, so you've just said that, you know, these, these harm reduction interventions and addiction treatment programs are, are neither feasible to the required scale, nor are they sufficient for addressing this crisis. Are you suggesting decriminalization then as, as the, the next step or, or the solution? Well, decriminalization should have been the first step. Okay. So um, I think many of us have, have been challenging the criminalization be, well, long before the opioid crisis. I yeah. mean, again, the idea that we take the most traumatized people in our society who happen to use drugs and uh, put them in jail is uh, a pretty radical concept to me. Sure. So um, often when I'm talking about harm reduction, people, oh, well, that's just too out there and too radical. And I, well... What are we doing now? We're spending all our money on policing and putting traumatized people in jail. It makes absolutely no sense. That's Mm -hmm. the most radical thing and the most uh, sloppy thing you could ever think to do, a lazy thing, you know? Like, we have to offer people something more than that. And um, even though um, the criminal justice system would say that they're not, uh, you know, not arresting as many people, we have such a cohort of uh, people now who are so enmeshed in the criminal justice system that they just are in and out all the time. Right. And uh, so it might not be for carrying drugs today, but they have all kinds of charges and they, they can never get back on track because their life revolves around being a criminal and their criminal records. And so we've really set people up and especially it's so tragic young people getting criminal records for their drug use basically sends them off on a totally different trajectory. So um, yeah. so the, the idea of decriminalization is not, not new with this. Um, it sure. makes it much more, um, much more urgent that we start thinking differently about uh, how we criminalize. So I, I really do believe that uh, that needs to happen. Um, it's un- very unfortunate that um, you know, we, we don't seem to want to have the, even start that conversation. I, having said that, uh, two years ago, it would be a total non-starter. At least now, a lot of the um, people who are, you know, the uh, leaders in the field of addiction and uh, a lot of uh, political leaders are now saying, yeah, that we should be considering this. So mm. I think there is a, a wave. And if uh, the public understood what this means, um, I think most people would agree that why would we be spending all our money on the criminal justice system and jailing people for trauma and poverty, basically, yeah. and they happen to use drugs. So uh, I, I, I strongly believe that we need to have a, a totally new look at that. And it wouldn't, uh, and if we decriminalize tomorrow, I don't think it would make um, much of a difference to the to to Joe Blow on the street, they you know it would be would mean that people using drugs wouldn't be put in the criminal justice system, but it wouldn't mean that everybody starts using drugs or that you know it would wouldn't have you know an impact other than the people who are currently entrenched in this. Sure, I guess my so I understand how decriminalization you know keeps people out of the criminal justice system and actually sets them up with you know, potentially different trajectory in terms of how their life might be, especially if they were able to kick the addiction or, or, or go through rehabilitation. How does decriminalization lead to a clean drug supply? Well, um, and, and we're just, since we are talking about poisonings, um, that's where I'm, I'm quite curious um, how that works. I think they're linked. I mean, 
the so let's say we wanted to offer people a safer supply of pharmaceutical drugs, which I'm advocating for. Um, the regulation regulation of these drugs uh, would be much easier if it was decriminalized. So if we we're handing out people, giving them drugs to take home that were safe, um, if it's if it's illegal, they could you know they're at risk of being picked up for carrying illegal drugs. So I mean mm-hmm. the, you know we need to. Um, people in those programs would need some sort of exemption. That, no, you cannot arrest this person. They're in some kind of program here. Yeah. So um, so they, they're linked that way. If we were using pharmaceutical drugs that are technically legal and uh, approved already, um, it's not that big a jump to, so to be prescribing or allowing people to get, get access to these drugs in this current environment. Um, you probably wouldn't need any major legislative changes with decriminalization, but I think they are they are certainly linked. And um, so to try to um, promote a, a regulated, safer supply of opioids. And the other fascinating thing, the most the the reason people have the most difficulty connecting to services and connecting to housing and to connecting to all healthcare and rehab or whatever we want them involved in mm-hmm. it's because we they're in a situation where 24/7 they're searching for illegal drugs so right. if you're a poor person your whole life is consumed with finding drugs committing crime to get money to get drugs and mm-hmm. so it's so obvious to me that if we can get trying to break that cycle for people and say, okay, here's the get up in the morning, here's the drugs that you you desire. Yeah. Now let's start working on other things instead of, you know, um, you find your own drugs. It can take many hours, and it's a it's a big deal for mm. people. And um, you know, whatever activities they're in to get these drugs. They're technically most of them are illegal and or dangerous for them to do. So their yeah. whole life is. Uh, quite precarious because they're searching for drugs. And so we need to take that away. And the, if you talk to somebody who's going to Crosstown, the, probably the biggest a benefit of that program is they wake up in the morning feeling like they're sick and they need some drugs and they can just go get some mm-hmm. rather than waking up in the morning and who am I going to steal from today? Or right. What window can I break? Or what sex work can I get involved in? I mean, it's uh, right. It, we put people in this very violent structure that um, just again it makes it very difficult for people to come out. And mm-hmm. uh, we'd have far more success with connecting with people if we uh, met them, you know, gave them the, the drugs that they need at that time, and then you know get them involved in things. And I think many people could find their way out of the situation. But as long as they're out there chasing drugs all day. Um, they have really no time to think about anything else. Yeah. So would the idea of decriminalization be coupled with these facilities like Crosstown sort of being in strategic places where people could then get access to free drugs? I guess I'm trying to figure out how do you get people off of the drugs that they they get on the street or they procure procure on the street into these facilities that can offer um, safe drugs. Yeah. I mean, we need to, you know, what I'm working on now is trying to find different models where people can get these drugs. So mm-hmm. um, if, as I said, for Crosstown, for a certain proportion of people, it's acceptable that they can go and meet those appointments. But as I've been working in other newer programs like Crosstown, it's 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 fairly difficult to find people who can consistently show up for these appointments over time. So we need to have lower barrier ways for people to access these medications. And it could be 
through pharmacies or um, what I've been um, uh, trying to uh, pilot and experiment with is uh, is dispensing machines where people could go and, and get that. Vending machines. Yeah, we're calling them dispensing machines, <laughs> but they're... Uh, um, I have a you know prototype that's almost ready. They're very secure, biometric. They're like ATM machines, and hmm. so we can program them to allow people to get a certain amount of drugs in particular times. And uh, so I think this would be a potentially scalable model where um, we wouldn't need a massive infrastructure of healthcare workers and right. uh, and this. And the the other thing that the um, you know people do. Um, like to inject drugs, but if we could offer people alternatives that they wouldn't have to inject, that would be one benefit of giving people out pills. But um, the pills that we could uh, dispense that may be injected are just so much cheaper <laughs> than uh, giving the injectable program. So it, again, from a cost perspective, again, it's a much more scalable, doable model. So uh, mm -hmm. we're hoping to pilot something in the next few months, and uh, and maybe that could be a um, help with this uh, uh, safer drug supply. How how do the dispensing machines work? You said they they use biometrics. So, can you walk me through it in terms of um, if a user is trying to get drugs from one of these machines? Sure. Um, I've I've been advised that I don't want to get way ahead of myself because okay, we haven't enough. started this yet. But the basic principle is that these are eight hundred pound steel boxes. They're bolted to the floor. Yeah. They have. Uh, capacity to be programmed to dispense any quantity that we want. Mm -hmm. um, the only people that can access them ha um, are registered with a biometric that's basically foolproof, so only that person can access the medication. Gotcha. There's a screen on it that can give messages, and we could even set up an interactive thing. If people needed help, they could push a button, and they could see somebody on the screen or talk to somebody, so they could be you know, useful for people to uh, connect if they were ready to connect and needed some, some help. Mm -hmm. um, we could put uh, warnings out there for, you know, bad drugs are out there. So there's all kinds of ways we can interact, people can interact with these machines. Right. Um, we'd have real-time accounting of every pill that comes out. So as far as, you know, security and regulation, and we'd, we'd know exactly what was, what was going on in real time. Mm -hmm. And it would give people a little bit of autonomy. So again, this idea that people uh, need to have constant connection. Most people um, don't want sort of daily talking to people about, like they just want to get on with things themselves. And um, Insight's very, you know, we've had data from Insight for so long that if you sit in Insight, there's about 800 visits there per day. Mm -hmm. um, 95% of those people walk in with their heads down, they have their drugs, they use their drugs, and they leave. There, There's people around to help them and interact. But People who are injecting multiple times a day do not need to talk to somebody about their drug use, sure. you know, three times a day. I mean, they kind of yeah. know. And then over time, comfort, relationships, something happens, people, it's time for them or people need help. And then insight, people can interact. So um, the idea that uh, the uh, putting things out by a machine is just too impersonal and we really need to connect with people, I think um, we can do a great job of connecting with people through this technology. And then mm -hmm. um, when they need face-to-face, -face, we can make sure it's there for them. When are we going to start seeing this technology, at least in a test mode or, or something on the streets of Vancouver? Well, let's say optimistically by the end of the year. Or really? That's next okay. Year. So yeah. I'd like to test. We have the 
we have the technology. It's just a matter of getting uh, enough people on side and uh, yeah. and uh, showing. And it's just a huge switch in people's thinking that um, the narrative right now is uh, these drugs are deadly and they're you know we got to stop people from using them and trying to tell people no actually we need to give people these drugs now. So yeah. um, I understand this. Uh, it's just going to take a while for people to un- to get used to this idea, but. Uh, mm-hmm. With the the fentanyl and the um, analogs around fentanyl have changed everything. So we're not we don't have the luxury of trying to solve addiction and poverty and mental illness, which is the other major push that yeah. uh, you know the Ontario government's come out very strongly. They don't support harm reduction at all. People should stop using drugs, and we should give them some facilities to go get rehabbed you know um, oh really okay but it's just not that simple it's you know well why not combine the two <laughs> exactly so there <laughs> to me that it's a it's the same um, strategy it's just where you catch people so we want to catch people exactly where they are right now and mm-hmm. that's they're buying poison drugs and overdosing so let's solve that problem for them here's some drugs that won't kill you and then we can say you know, maybe these we can, you know, slowly get you onto something else, some substitution therapy, and get you in a methadone or suboxone program. And for many people, they will eventually transition into that. And then, mm-hmm. you know, if abstinence is the major goal at the end of the day, that's great. But yeah. um, for many people, just you can't turn it off like that. They've used yeah. drugs for 20 years. They're not going to – there's reasons they're using those drugs, and it's not as simple as uh, – you know, telling them that uh, they should go to a rehab facility. Like sure. it, it, it's, we know that doesn't work for a lot of people. And so we need to come up with a, a system where we catch people, you know, where they are right now. And I think for many people, they just need a safer supply of opiates right now. Yeah. And then we can, you know, work on this trajectory and to, you know, to get them housing and all these things that people need. But uh, we can't, we can't solve, we won't solve addiction in the next, uh, 12 months. Um, yeah, fair enough. But we can reduce number of people dying of overdoses. Mm-hmm. So so that is really the next goal. I, I mean, obviously keeping people safe and then hoping that that will lead it to a gateway where th- they want to get into a rehab program, whether it's yeah. methadone or I've even heard uh, Ibogaine is quite popular in, and not in the States, but in Mexico, there's, there's certain programs that are popular there yeah um is that the trajectory that you see well for some people i mean um again um i've had you know my experience clinically i have uh, realistic expectations for people i mean um whether that happens in uh, six months or six years i'm not sure um most people who reduce or stop their drug use it's not because of any medical intervention it's something socially or something better happened to them and i Hmm. often say People will continue using drugs until they find something better. And yeah. so um, it peop- often people who uh, I see, you know, changing course, um, something happened to them. They got their kid back or they, you know, mm-hmm. they met up with their mother again or they, you know, they got a, ho- they got a house. Um, you know, things that um, are more social drivers of this rather than any medical intervention. Right. And uh, so we, we've tended to think now that, you know, um, we really need to m- medicalize this, but I, you know, most of it to me is uh, a, a social, environmental issues that people are facing problems, and not so much a a mental disease or a. You mm-hmm. know, and so we really need to uh, 
you know, pull back on our focus. We need to medicalize this. Um, you know, right. most people would do far better getting a stable house than they would getting in some fancy recovery bed somewhere. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah. we need to be practical about that and to practical about what our expectations are. There's people that will probably continue to use drugs until they die. And mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, we can't fix all their traumas and we can't fix all the things. We can try and, and encourage them to use other things and, you know, deadly drugs to uh, to uh, um, treat their trauma. But for some people, that's the, the best they have right now. And mm-hmm. uh, we just need to harm reduction the whole philosophy is that people don't need to die because of their drug use. Yeah. And so that, that's uh, still the, the uh, basic philosophy that I have. I think you bring up a really interesting point when you're looking at social factors and, and why people, you know, decide to make that change in their life. Um, Yoan Ari talks about, you know, mental wellness or mental illness and things like addiction and he sort of looks at two main factors. One is trauma, which we've already discussed, and the other is um, a feeling of meaningfulness in your life. Mm-hmm. And if you have trauma and you don't feel like your life is meaningful, you know, you're a lot more susceptible to mental illness, to drug dependency, and these type of things. So I almost feel like, and, and his, his book's wonderful, and I, I almost do feel like one thing that we're missing, and, and as you've just pointed out, is there is a social aspect to this, right? And when you are dealing with a social aspect as opposed to just a clinical aspect, it is mm. something that doesn't necessarily change overnight. I mean, you mm. you can look at very um, innocuous examples from, from our own lives, uh, whether it's a decision to live a healthier life and you're going to eat a lot more vegetables and whatever mm. – they tend not to happen, you know, overnight. It tends to be a bit of a, a struggle to get to that new lifestyle. Yeah. So, and that's something relatively easy compared to when, if we're talking about mental illness or um, addiction or, or these type of things. So yeah. do, do you feel that that's one of the main challenges in addressing this crisis is that whether it's policymakers or culture as a whole, we're sort of looking at it from the, the wrong lens? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of um, this, uh, the definition of uh, drug use as a chronic relapsing brain disease, I, I push back on that. For mm-hmm. many people, it's not, it's, uh, the drugs aren't, are, are, are fine for them. Um, they, it's all the things on the, in the environment that are killing them. And yeah. so, um, and there's great examples with these uh, overdose prevention sites that have popped up. Many of them have been, um, uh, run by peers or at least staffed by people using drugs. And there's uh, talking to people working at this. This has been life-changing for them to have some usefulness. So mm-hmm. I know, I, I know, I personally know people that I've followed clinically that were doing quite terrible as far as because they had nothing to do or live for other than take drugs, and they've been given some responsibility, and they really feel that they're they have something to offer now, and they. Um, you know, I'm just thinking of a couple of people in particular who have told me that they're not using or using very little drugs now. They have wow. they go to the overdose prevention site and they work there every day and they don't feel the need to be using as much and they mm. have something to live for. The naloxone program that has trained, you know, hundreds or thousands of people who are 
you know, users themselves. Um, mm-hmm. It's been extremely, uh, um, you know, um, interesting to see how they've reacted, and now they have a mission. So there's people who get up in the morning to help people who overdose and yeah. uh, gives them something to to do. There's the the needle pickup programs, the things try to engage people and make them feel like they're part of the solution and help is uh, is extremely beneficial to them. Yeah. So th- those kind of engagement and you know the the big problem with putting people on methadone or suboxone or drugs that are substitutes that are you know safe and regulated. Um, but to tell people you know take these, you won't feel any drug sickness, but go back to your cockroach infested room and lie and look mm-hmm. at the ceiling and think about all the trauma you've been at it's not a, it's not that surprising that people decide that they don't want to take this anymore so yeah. if nothing else happened to them so um one of the things unfortunately they they canceled the program in in Portugal because of uh um austerity reasons but uh, initially when they decriminalized they put a lot of the resources they were doing to criminal justice into employment programs so mm. they they had a they had a um a system where the first year they would pay the um, the employer to um to employ somebody with a history of drug use and the government would pay for the their salary for the first year oh, okay and uh they had great success in getting people signing up for this program the employers were very happy and in many cases um after the year they employed like they were uh, you know successfully yeah. employed and they kept going so those kind of things are just so obvious to me that we need to give people um something to live for whether it's education or employment or or feeling part of something is extremely beneficial and we uh it, when we totally medicalize things we we don't really um we don't focus on that and we don't put enough enough resources into that and part of you know wh- how I've started thinking about this has a lot to do with my work at St. Paul's Hospital um you know for years just um getting people coming into hospital extremely sick um coming from pretty bad uh, situations in environment drug using, sticking them in hospital for a month, treat, giving them all kinds of treatment, spending all kinds of mon- medical um, resources on treating basically preventable infections and things. And then mm. uh, as soon as they're finished their treatment, they just discharge back on the street and they yeah. start all over. It's like we just spent you know $100,000 on fixing your endocarditis and we're giving you zero to, uh, you know, when you leave hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Taking yeah. half of that money and saying, okay, when you leave, be sure we're not sending you back to the street corner and just picking up where you left off. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the the kind of ridiculous way that we've uh, decided to, to treat this problem as, as a medical issue is, uh, you know, it's no wonder it just keeps cycling back to us. So we mm-hmm. need to have a totally different approach in what opportunities we give people. Mm-hmm. I love that story or that idea of people who were users or are users, you know, working at a at a crosstown clinic or, or working in these other programs and helping other people within their own community, within the downtown east side. Like, I think that also provides a model and inspiration for others around them, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to just an outside force coming in and saying, okay, we're going to make you better, but to actually have that community healing from the inside is is a pretty incredible yeah thing that's happening right well you know there's a people who have been down there a long time really value the community like it down it looks to the outsider as just a bunch of chaos chaos and mm-hmm. people in uh, extreme uh, situations but uh there's a lot of interaction and a lot of support and uh 
the the thing that's gone missing a lot in the um, this whole overdose crisis is the how devastating it's been to that community. These are not yeah. just uh, individuals found alone who uh, nobody cared about. I mean, um, this has been very difficult for the community, and some of the most you know uh, fearless advocates have been uh, driven down. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. all their friends are dying, and yeah. they they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, and it's uh, that's a real um, that's a real issue as far as keeping this, uh, um, keeping things in the forefront and making sure that people understand that the crisis is still continuing when some of our advocates have either died already or they've just been, they're surrounded by um, death of their friends and colleagues. And it's, yeah. uh, it's just so tragic that uh, a whole community has been uh, impacted like this. Yeah. Do you believe that enough political will exists today to take on this crisis seriously? Well, as I said, I mean, we should be in a reasonably good situation for that. I I think that the people, um, you know, like me, who are supposed to come up with uh, solutions have not really presented presented viable solutions. I mean, we, Mm -hmm. we, you know, I'm... I'm working very hard to make people understand that uh, um, the situation is basically the same as it was three or four years ago, but fentanyl is here now. And yeah. so we need to uh, we need to address this one head on. And so I don't think there's any uh, political pushback from this, but we need to come up with um, really viable interventions and programs. So um, if we're asking the government just to do more of the same um, – this is what this is the situation that we're going to be in. So I mm-hmm. haven't, you know, I think the in certainly in British Columbia, the political will is there to to yeah. really um, do something about this. And uh, there's m- m- there's resources been put in this, and uh, the programs that we presented have been largely supported and funded. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's um, there's probably nothing out there that's um, holding things back other than. Uh, fresh ideas and uh um you know get, and getting um yeah get, getting people to understand the the situation better that we're in so um i think on the the whole th- from a federal perspective i think there could be more uh statements about you know how important this is for mm-hmm. sure but um even at the federal level the um exemptions for supervised injection sites and these kind of things that have traditionally been a, a real hold up and not even addressing harm reduction. So the conservative government took harm reduction language right out of their, any drug policy. Right. So the current, uh, we put it back in, and so uh, for the most part, um, feds support that. But it's um, we need you know good ideas to support, and as long as we don't come up with uh, with adequate solutions, then uh, um, what's the government supposed to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've we've touched on this um, a little bit, and and I want I want you to take this question on head on. There are many critics of harm reduction strategies and decriminalization that say this normalizes drug addiction and detracts from treatment and recovery. What would you say to those people or those critics? Well, um, the. Uh they don't really understand what we're trying to do. I mean, yeah. they're, they're not diametrically opposed things. We're trying to get steer people in a, a more healthier direction, for sure. And mm-hmm. uh, there, you know, 
I can just challenge people, just spend an hour at Insight and seeing who's coming in there. Like, where where do you suggest we start? Like, there you can't force people into treatment. Um, we need to engage people and move them on down the road slowly. Mm-hmm. So to me, harm reduction is just at the starting point of the whatever people want in, in abstinence and recovery. So it's... And, Enabling people just seems to be so such a crazy thought. Like, why would we know people are going to use that? If we if we thought that it w- criminalization was a deterrent, or using dirty needles was a deterrent, or um, you know, um, sitting in a in a rainy alley in a puddle was a deterrent, I mean, people would deter. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we we put people in situations that are just so preposterous and horrible that uh, if that was enough to stop people using drugs, then they would have a long time ago. You know, yeah. if, uh, if you're doing sex acts for five bucks, I mean, I, I just really don't think that uh, any kind of uh, criminal deterrent or any any kind of thing that's going to force you into t- treatment is just is just not going to work. We have to start somewhere and uh, harm reduction to me is just the entry point for a lot of the other things people want to do. And so I uh I I I don't think they should be uh that we shouldn't be arguing about this. We should be mm-hmm. certainly if it becomes about resources, you know, people who say we shouldn't put any resources into harm reduction, it should all be into sort of rehab and recovery. Um, they have no evidence to back that up whatsoever. I mean, right. the, um, put, taking people who are not ready for this, um, their chance of success is essentially zero. Mm-hmm. So people who um, go through a rehab, recovery, abstinence program um, and successfully do it, um, they were ready to do that. And so it's great for them. I'm, I'm all supportive. But uh, most people who we currently see who are most impacted by and most at risk of overdoses are just not ready for that. And yeah. we need to offer them alternatives. And if uh, eventually they move into that, that's, uh, that's great. I'm not uh, against that at all. But uh, it's this enabling thing makes absolutely no sense. I mean, sure. um, the people, we've seen what people will do, the, the uh, people to do to access and use drugs. And so... Um, we're not uh, giving them a clean needle or a place to go is not a, an enabling thing whatsoever. Yeah. And I love what you what you said earlier was that you're trying to meet people where they are right now and they mm-hmm. might not be ready for rehabilitation right now, but we still have to help these people. We still have to be empathetic and show compassion. So yeah, when as far as the you know methadone and suboxone, the substitution programs, um, I've you know worked at clinics for a long time, and we know that people are on and off these things all the time, depending right. on what's happened. They might do great for a year, and then all of a sudden they don't show up for six months, and they've started using again. And this is mm. a regular pattern, and and people who came and said, you know, I'm not ready for methadone, I don't want to do that, and then you'd probably say, well, fine, you know. Um, We'll see you in six months. You know I'm always here, and we can we can try again. Um, but uh, now they might not come back because they're dead. So it's hmm. it's a yeah. again we need to offer people more than that. We just can't say this is what we're offering you. If you don't want it, you know um, that's too bad. Um, you know we and we've been trained in the medical profession to try to pick people off who are drug seekers. So it's very common that uh, both uh, in emergency departments and uh, dropping clinics and pe- doctors are inundated all the time with people, you know, saying they have pain and they really need these drugs. And uh, doctors have become quite good at saying, "Well, no, I don't think that you have any physical pain. I'm not going to give you these." And um, 
knowing now they're going to go buy some street fentanyl and have a high have a high risk of dying. And yeah. so it's not a success. I think if you go into the emergency department and the doctor says, no, I'm not giving you these things, and you overdose and die in the parking lot, I mean, I don't think that's particularly successful medical care. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. we, you know, we need to get much more uh, nuanced and sophisticated in the way we uh, engage with people and treat people. And uh, if we know that we're exposing them to a, a poison product out there, we have to do better than just say, when you're ready for rehab, why don't you come and talk to me? Because uh, yeah, a lot of people aren't coming back. Yeah, fair enough. What's going to happen if government doesn't scale up if its efforts, if we don't ha- have more cross-down clinics or these dispensing machines that, that you're talking about? What's what's the end here? Well, it's I, if somebody had told me, uh, well, when I first took this per, this job I have right now four years ago, I would nobody would have predicted we'd be in this situation sure. four years from now. So it, it's unpredictable, mostly because we're dealing with a, an unregulated illegal drug market that's totally out of our control. There's nothing, yeah. nothing to stop heroin from flowing back into Vancouver in six months. I, you know, I don't, we don't have really control of that. And then mm-hmm. overdoses would would slow down for sure. Or maybe mm-hmm. the people marketing fentanyl would just get a little smarter with their quality control because people are using fentanyl all the time and not overdosing. Sure. Um, it's just bad batches that come out that are way too potent, and the quality of these things is is just so poor, and uh, the quality control of the illegal market is so poor. So it's possible that just... And the other thing is attrition. How many people are going to die? So, you yeah. know, there's... You know, the in the last three years, 4,000 BC people have died, and, and how many more can there be? And, and presumably the 4,000 were the most vulnerable people. So mm-hmm. most epidemiologic curves naturally would start going down because the population at risk has is gone down. So, you know, a very you know, horrible way to look at this is it, it will go down because of attrition. There's not as many people out there who are gonna who are gonna overdose. Right. Um, so I can't really predict. I do think that um, if we do really focus on a, a safer drug supply and a different way to treat people with addiction through the criminal justice system, we can uh, actually impact on the number of people dying. Mm -hmm. We should continue to uh, try to make people's lives better. We should try to prevent people from getting uh, uh, dependent in the first place. All these things are extremely important, and I think we'll know eventually make a little headway to that but as long as we're our our the numbers are totally dependent on an external force being an illegal drug market where our hands are a little bit tied as far as predicting you know predicting the future yeah so um, i have a feeling if we had this conversation a year from now um we would still be in the middle of a crisis and um Hmm. um, i'm you know optimistic we can do something different but um it's uh we really need to change our focus and uh, um, really look at the, the where the drugs are coming from. Yeah. Uh, pulling back the focus a little bit, I, th- I think a lot of this comes down to choosing the type of society that we want, right? And, and oftentimes that's defined by how do we look at our most vulnerable, our most marginalized, and what are we doing to, to help them? Um and I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. And again, like you said, this crisis is unpredictable in terms of where it's going to go in terms of deaths or addiction rates or, or whatever. But ultimately, that question will still linger if the status quo continues, right? Well, yeah, you probably need a, a sociologist to speak to about that. But <laughs> I, 
you know, clearly uh, the way we treat our most vulnerable people is uh, is getting worse. I think yeah. the the inequity in society is is getting worse, not better. Um, that um, it's inevitably there'll be a certain number, a certain proportion of your population who just doesn't fall in line, just doesn't make a goal of it, and mm-hmm. uh, and we um, allow people like that to fall off and then give them very little chance to climb back. And mm-hmm. that's where criminalization and those kind of things. A, a young person who's traumatized and um, starts using too much, um, the worst thing you can do with them is put them in the criminal justice system. Yeah. And that's what we've decided to do with most people. So we have now a whole population of people who have uh, been totally crippled by the environment that that we've subjected them to, have been pushed to the margins of society. And uh, it's a very difficult clawback for those people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is. It does um, really reflect our society for sure. And um, so, uh, you know, most people that I can take down on a tour, like it, it's not that difficult to understand that people need empathy and help, not punishment. Um, but we don't. Uh, um, we we don't really do a good job of of helping people understand what how people got there and and why they're doing what they're doing. So mm-hmm. we could do a much better job of educating people and making them see that uh, inequities in our society and uh, how we treat people is really at the at the base of this also. Yeah, absolutely. What can ordinary people do to help educate others and advocate for uh, for solutions to this opioids crisis? Um that's a great question. I mean, the the problem is just so widespread that a lot of people now have been touched personally by this or knowing somebody true. that uh, knew somebody or, you know, so it's uh it's come to the point where it's it's in the in the view of a lot of people in in British Columbia who mm-hmm. who uh know it's a problem. And so I think we need to not let this uh let the crisis die. I mean, it's very hard to keep the, you know, this idea this is a crisis, we need to do something year after year, mm-hmm. um, and it becomes kind of normal, and I think we need to push back. No, this is not normal. Uh, unfortunately, maybe 200 deaths uh, of overdoses a year was normal, but 2,000 is not normal, and uh, we need to keep that in, you know, things like you're doing, trying to get get it out there and, get, and uh, I hope people understand what, what's really happening and uh, support and, and question and push the government to uh, make sure they, they fund innovative programs and uh, keep this in the, in the public eye. Um, there's lots of practical things people can do as far as, uh, you know, contributing to different programs and things of volunteer work and to... Um, you know, contribute money to to different programs and things. Mm-hmm. I think there's real practical things people can do also. Yeah. Um, but just have an awareness that uh, this problem really is uh, requires a lot of empathy and understanding, and uh, that we can't. Uh, you know, the, the the criminal approach to drug use is uh, just wrong for our society and mm-hmm. causes so much damage both to society in general and to the the people most impacted. And get that message out there is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I like what you said about you know, pushing your, your local representation in, in government, whether that's federal, provincial, municipal, to mm-hmm. support these programs and to get that conversation not just happening culturally, but also politically as well. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things that I hear, you know, and people who are, have the most extreme views are often the ones that get their viewpoints out there. But, you know, communities who are 
you know, fighting back on shelters and housing supports and uh, all the stuff about finding a dirty needle in a schoolyard. And stuff. People have to get over those kind of things. Mm-hmm. That, that is, you know, it's a much bigger issue than this and uh, that we need to, uh, you know, understand that these, uh, this issue exists in your community and, yeah. uh, and really support sort of evidence-based, tried and true ways to do it. And, um, you know, ha- having, you know, developing housing for people and uh, having harm reduction programs uh, benefits everybody. And uh, we need to keep pushing back on people who are, or who are not supportive. Definitely. Last question. Uh, where can people learn more about the BC CDC? Uh, do you have any recommended readings or, or maybe where can people go if they want to learn more, basically? Great timing. So at 9.30 today, we're releasing an annual report about this. So we hold uh, the last three years, BC CDC has sponsored a, a multi-stakeholder event uh, called an overdose exchange event. And so we, uh, just today, it was held in June. And so today, the, the final report is out there with uh, a lot of discussion and ideas in it. It's meant to be... Uh, to capture uh, a day's worth of dialogue. It's, so it's not like bang, bang, bang. These are the five recommendations. It's not a consensus document as much as a, a conversation document with a lot of information there mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, ideas. So it was supposed to be a safe environment for people to exchange ideas. And uh, so that um, now has just been posted on the BCCDC website. Great. And so um, they can get that. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a yeah, there's a lot have been written about this, but as far as the BCCDC, we have uh, dashboards of current information and data. We have uh, a whole um, section on our naloxone program um, and um, guidelines for overdose prevention sites. So I think BCCDC website's a good place to start, um, but this uh, uh, report is just out uh, fresh today. Cool. Dr. Mark Tindall, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here with me. Um, This opioids crisis is an urgent matter that's facing our city, our province, and our country. And I think a lot of us, myself included, just don't know too much about it. But I appreciate you uh, sitting down and and explaining everything to me very, very clearly um, so I can understand and so the listeners can understand both the urgency and the magnitude of this situation. So thank you very much for being here. Thanks for the opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, that was health crusader Dr. Mark Tyndall. And I'm Mo Amir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.